All right, Acts chapter 8. If you were here last week for Acts chapter 6 and (laughs) 7, Brent last week took um, 70 verses. Now, he didn't like unpack all those, but like, Brent has a gift for doing that. Like, this dude can travel some miles in a day and like come out with it looking pretty darn good. And he, like, it was heavy message. So I, uh, I recommend that you go back if you missed it and listen to it because it has to do with the first martyr of the church or the first public murder that ever went down in Christianity. And so we're coming off the heels of that. Since he took 70 verses uh, last week, I'm going to offset that with three verses today. We're going to take three verses today. So Acts chapter 8, uh, I really believe the first line or the first sentence there belongs at the end of 7. Um, but it doesn't matter. What we see here is the murder of Stephen that just occurred and Saul approved his execution. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Um, in the early 90s, I was living in Southern California, and there was this tension that was, uh, this underlying tension that was going on down there, you might have remembered it, between people groups and especially the LAPD and the police force. There was like a lot of like anger and bitterness um, that was there, but it was below the surface um, until April 26, 1992, when a verdict was handed down. And I remember sitting in front of my television with my dad watching this dude get pulled out of his truck and beaten. And at that point, it became like real that this tension had gone from something below the surface that was lying underneath to like exposed fully and unleashed fully. And it was a scary thing to watch. Um, I remember thinking, watching that on TV, like, like this is on, like this is going down right now. And then everything else felt, you know, all the other pictures were people, you know, going in and out of places and looting them like, like there was no authority, which is scary, you know, and vandalism and, and, and buildings being lit on fire like there was no authority, like it didn't matter anymore. Like everything was just fully out there and turned loose. And we kind of get that picture here that the, the death of Stephen actually took Um, What had been mostly cordial publicly so far with that tension and that hate towards the church, it took it from behind closed doors to fully exposed, fully public. Like this is the point when they murdered Stephen that the church looked at it and said, this is on, like this is going down right now. And and in a way, um, I kind of look at this as like the second act that we're entering in the book of Acts. This is like act two. There's There's a shift that happens in the book right here. Because up to this point, the church mostly in Jerusalem has prospered and flourished and experienced excitement and hope and growth by the thousands with very little resistance. But this is that point where that tension against the gospel reaches its boiling point and everything shifts over. The fury and the hate against those who preach against and follow or preach and follow Jesus is on. It's all going down now. 
And uh, what we saw in the text last week with Stephen is really the enemy's coming out party against the church. And it's led by a young man named Saul. And what I want to do today is I want to bring out four things in these three verses. I'm going to keep this really simple. The first thing is that God uses pressure to bring about production. You guys see that in that text? God uses pressure to bring about production. It says in verse 1, there arose on that day, what day? The day that Stephen was murdered. A great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Do you guys remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8? Turn there real quick. Leave your finger here. Turn over to Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus is about to ascend. He's got parting words for his disciples. Here's what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice the address on these two verses. One is the, the prediction, the command is Acts 1.8. The fulfillment that we're seeing is Acts 8.1. You know what that means? Nothing. <laughs> Just thought I'd tell you that. You're welcome. The address are not inspired by God. Okay? Some of you might argue that. It was always God's plan, plan A, for the early church to leave Jerusalem at some point and go into strange areas, to go into Judea, to go into Samaria, to be his witnesses. And God is going to make sure that that happens. And he did through trial, through challenge, through pressure. And just as a side note, we might as well jump into this real quick. I know you guys all know this, but I want us all to, to hear this again. God is a global God, not a local one only. God is a, is a global God. And what I mean by that is the voice of God for His people has always said, go, not stay. Go, therefore, that emphatic command at the beginning of the Great Commission, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Right? Go. The Gospel is not good news for one city or one type of people, or one region. I love this sign that's up here with the book of Acts. It's pertinent. The Gospel is good news for the entire world. Jesus is necessary for the entire world. God's plans have always involved moving out rather than moving up. We see this from the beginning of our Bibles where God tells our early parents, and the early ancestors, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. What do we see happening right after that? A tower being built. Right? These guys are like, we don't want to go out and multiply. We want to stay put and multiply. We're going to go up instead of out. And what does God do with that? He, yeah, He handles business. He's like, He comes and He puts pressure on them. He says, if you're not going to go willingly, then I'll just 
handle it myself. And he confuses their language, and they all go different directions. God is always, His command has always been go, not stay. And it's so weird because this is an epidemic, I think, in this country, in the church. Is our idea of success, and I'm not going to lie, I have it too. Like, I have to fight this all the time. Is that success as a pastor, success as a church planter, success as a leader in the church, looks like this thing, not this thing. And so we build these things that are bigger. And we fill them with as many people as we possibly can. And we add services. And we have as many programs and things to offer people so that there's a lot going on in the church. And we go, this is success. But it's not what God thinks is success necessarily. Listen, I don't have a problem with big churches, guys. I have a problem with people that are trying to make big churches. Those are two different things. It's the difference between someone being faithful to God with the gospel of the kingdom in, an, in, a, in a, uh, a specific region where the population's huge and seeing people come in in one and the guy whose intention is to say, this is what I want to see. This is the measure of success. God doesn't look at it that way. God wants his church to go out and spread out to all the areas, but it's easier for us to stay. And if we will not go out as a church, then God will sometimes get creative with us. Pressure equals production. Not just in the church, but even in our own lives. I know you guys know what this one means. A couple of months ago, um, I was not in a good spot. I was in a bad spot. Okay, Internally. And I, without going into all the details of it, it was a slow burn that got me there. It was like a series of things going on within me and around me in my life that brought me to a place um, where my mindset um, was less than godly. I was looking at things wrong. And I remember one day sitting in my house, in my office, in my seat, all alone, thinking, how to come in here and tell Terry and Brent that I don't want to do this anymore. Because that's where what was going on inside of me had taken me to. It like completely shifted me and pulled me off of where God wanted me to be. And I'm thinking, how do I come in and tell them I just don't even want to lead people anymore? I don't want to do what I've been doing. I need out. And there was so much pressure on me that I did something that I'd never do. I read a book. <laughs> I'm serious. Me and my wife were at this point, <clears throat> I can't remember if someone told us or not, they're like, just go. You know, like, just get away for a few days. It was probably Terry and Brett. Like, just hook up your trailer and just go. And we went to Medford because there's an In-N-Out burger there, right? <laughs> we're like, we'll go to Medford. And uh, we ate there every meal. <laughs> and... Um, but we're like, we're like camped out in the middle of nowhere. And right before we, you know, pull out to go in the trailer, I'm like, I probably should, like, I'm not going to have time. I'm, I'm going to have all the time in the world. I might as well read something. I have a million books up here that everybody's given me. I've collected over the years. I can't get to them. I hate reading anyway. Like, I'm going to take a book. And I grabbed this book by a guy, a friend of mine, actually, named Zach Eswine, called The Imperfect Pastor. And I've got to tell you that there's no other time in my life that I was supposed to read that book. It completely rebuked me. 
And it completely saved me at the same time. It completely calibrated me. But in order for me to get to that point, I had to come to a place where I was so uncomfortable. And not all of it was something that I found out now, 2020's hindsight, that I was doing to myself. God does this stuff with us sometimes. He will, he will press on us so hard sometimes that we are forced into things that we otherwise don't do for ourselves. I was pressed down and I was challenged internally, but what ended up coming out of that was a total breakthrough in my life, personally. I was in a bad place. God uses pressure to bring about production. It's part of the theology of suffering that we often talk about here, and some of you hate it when we do. Theology of suffering, what a great thing to talk. It's just, it's necessary. The Bible talks about it a lot. That we are to share in the sufferings of Christ is a Christian reality. That's a Christian reality. That we are to endure hardships and challenges at the hand of God is a Christian reality. Why? Because that's how change happens. That's how transformation occurs. That's how maturity and growth into the full measure of the stature, uh, stature of Christ is achieved. I mean, let's face it. I don't know about you. If I am not challenged, I do not change, man. If we're not pressed on, we do not learn or move or grow. Where do we find this theology in the Bible? Go to Hebrews chapter 12 real quick. This is worth going to. Hebrews chapter 12. I call this the woodshed chapter. I wish we were expositing this. We'll have to do this another day. Verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12. Consider him, Jesus is being talked about, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us. And we respected them. Maybe back then, not so much now. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, the earthly fathers, for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God the Father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. That's the goal. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Yeah. Yeah, it does rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. What an incredible section of Scripture. I call this the woodshed chapter. You know why. And what it's telling us is that God presses us down, not because He hates us, but because He loves us. 
The hardship is for benefit. The discipline is for growth. The pressure is for production. Not because we did something wrong, but because we will not, on our own, produce Christ-likeness in ourselves. So He does. This is what it means in Philippians 1.6 when it says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it out, to bring it to completion. There should be like some kind of warning label on this verse though. You know what I mean? Like caution, extremely painful. Extremely painful. But God is faithful. He began the work and He will see it through. He will do it in us. That should be a comfort to some of you today. Because some of you sometimes don't know what the heck's going on in your life, if anything. But if you are the property of Christ Jesus our Lord, know that God is doing a work in you. And He's going to bring it about to its fullness. If I am left alone without challenge in, this, in any area of my life, I will not change. And oftentimes, the church is no different. The church gets into ruts. It gets into synchronicities. It gets into systems. It gets into comfort zones. And it will not move unless God comes in and disrupts it. God is in the business of making sure that everything that He wants to get done will get done. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He said, You will be My witnesses in these places. And God, even through pressure, even through hardship, even through trial, is going to make sure that His church accomplishes it. God uses pressure to bring about production. Number two, these are going to get shorter and shorter. <laughs> you guys are like, dang, we're going to be here all afternoon. No, these four points are going to get shorter. That's one. Two, death sucks. Okay? Like that's, I know that's like super scholarly, but um, that's, that's what I came up with. Death sucks. And we kind of did something similar to this at, at um, Easter um, where we talked about death. Um, I don't know why I get these verses uh, whenever I'm teaching. Um, it, this is the fullness of what I want to call it. Though. Death sucks even for the believer, but, even, but only for a moment. Okay? I'm adding that last part. You're not finding it in this verse. We're going to take it a step farther. Death sucks even for the believer, but only for a moment. Verse 8-2, we see that devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. We don't use that word anymore. Some of you younger kids are like, I don't even know what that means. Lamentation. But you would know what it is if you've ever heard it. It's a passionate expression of grief. And it's a horrible noise. Why lamentation with these devout men? Because even for us who have hope over death, death still sucks now. It is horrific. It is painful. It is sometimes unspeakable. I was reminded of this again this week. God has always given me life pictures of the text I'm in. Tuesday, I went to work to clean chimneys with my son, Ty. And I wasn't going to go that day because I've been training my, my kids um, to take over the chimney business. And I was just going to, it was one of those days where I woke up and I thought, I'm just going to have Ty go do this on his own. But there was, there was that thing, whatever it is, that said you just need to go to work today with him. And so I went. 
And when we got to our third job, I found out why. It was a young couple. I've been cleaning their chimney for years. They've been customers for years. They're about 40 years old. Beautiful couple. Two kids, one in high school, one in junior high. And she is a believer, a strong one. And he is not. And I've been bugging this dude for years. He probably like, oh gosh, the chimney's getting cleaned again. Like, I gotta see this dude again. This dude's gonna be coming out again, you know. And the dude, but the dude's so nice. Like, the, he's super cool. He's a super cool guy. So, this dude's super nice, but it's like, I'm always poking at this guy when I get out there. You know what I mean? Like, inviting him to church. Like, how are you doing, man? Have you gone to church with your wife? Have you taken your wife to church? Like, have you been looking at the Bible at all? Uh, what are you thinking right now about God? Um, like, whatever. And we have a really good relationship. Like, he's not bothered by any of it. In fact, that's part of the problem with this guy. He's super nice and super indifferent to God. He's indifferent. He just doesn't care. And this lady has gone through a couple bouts with brain tumors. His wife. And she's been clear for five years. Clear. And there's a point where ties up on the roof, this huge A-frame, that's what I do now. I watch my kids go up onto the roof. I'm down there praying, you know. <laughs> and um, ties up there, and I'm standing there watching what he's doing, and this dude comes over, and he stands next to me. He doesn't look at me. He just stands side by side, and he's just looking at the ground. And then really awkwardly, really nervously, he says, I have a weird request. And, and I said, yeah, man, I like weird requests. And, and he says, I, I, I was wondering if you um, afterward would, would pray with me and my wife. And I said, dude, like, thank you so much for asking. I would love to. And when he looked up at me, he had tears coming down his face. And I knew that something was up because this dude, he just never really feels. <laughs> he just never puts out that kind of emotion. And I thought, what's going on? And then he told me, my wife's brain tumors come back. And it's different this time. She's got weeks. Her family's flying out here right now as fast as they can. Like this lady's done. Like she's gone. It's over. And at that moment, I wished I wasn't a pastor. At that, at that moment, I wished I didn't do what people expect me to do. Because I don't know how. And my heart broke and I, I lamented inside. I weep out loud inside my bones in my body because I don't, I don't know how to do things like this. I believe my theology. Just as Stephen saw that sky open up and he saw the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father waiting for him, I believe that's true for you and I. I believe it's true for this lady who's about to meet him. But I don't know how to say that. I, I don't know. It's too ugly, death. And I got cleaned up after the job and kind of did one of these and went in. And she was sitting in a chair and I knelt down in front of her and I grabbed her hand as tight as I could. And I prayed what I believed to be true. Because that's all I can do. But I left that day with a broken heart. Because death sucks. Even for the believer. I'm thinking of this family. I'm thinking that in a couple of weeks, these kids aren't going to have their mom. She's young. 
this young man is not going to have his wife. It's, it's going to flip everything over. This gal's going to be okay. In fact, she's going to be more than okay. It's the ones left behind. They're going to have to deal with this. You know, I, I comfort in what I see in our Lord. Because when he walked up to the tomb that Lazarus was in, he knew. He knew when he was walking up that Lazarus was going to be walking out of that tomb in a few minutes. And yet, what did he do? He wept. The lamentation preceded the celebration. The weeping came before the rejoicing. That's the difference. That's why it's only for a moment. Because there's a point where Jesus cried out loud, Lazarus, come forward. And he woke that man up. And Lazarus couldn't help but obey that voice, that command of, of God. And came forward. And then there was rejoicing. One day, for all of us who know Christ, Jesus is going to do the same thing with us. He's going to call us forth from our slumber. And there's going to be rejoicing. That's our blessed hope. That's why we don't weep as other people do who have no hope. What is that? 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't weep as other people do, and yet it still hurts. It's real. Um, I have no idea where I'm at. Death sucks, but only for a moment. Number three, if you're looking for a safe religion, don't choose Christianity. Right? I mean, that's weird for us to say the way we live. And I, I dealt with this mostly in uh, the last time I preached when we were in Acts chapter 5. Like, that's really what um, the, um, uh, the, the volume of that message was about. Um, but I feel like sometimes some of it's worth saying again. So, really briefly. I think that we can sometimes look at these accounts of the early church, the ravaging that's going on here, and say to ourselves, it's unique what they went through. Like, this is unique. But what we should be saying to ourselves is it's unique that we're not. Just because it's been safe in this country to be a Christian doesn't mean that Christianity is supposed to be safe. I know that sounds weird, but I want you to hear that. I think we've confused it. Jesus essentially, when saying to the disciples, come and follow me, was saying, come and die with me. Which is going to be another shirt. Come and die. You know, people are going to be like, what the? <laughs> as much as our lives as believers speaks life, it also brings, it speaks forth death. It just does. I mean, think about this for a moment. We worship a guy who was murdered. The gospel is an offense. And we're surprised when it is. If they hate you, Jesus said, know that they hated me first. Come follow me. Come and die. Pick up your instrument of, of torture, your instrument of death, and strap it to your back. That's what Jesus is inviting us to. 
These guys, this early church right here in this text, is going through it right now. And you know what? It's exactly what they signed up for. It's weird that we're not. If you're looking for a safe religion, don't choose Christianity. And it's coming, people. I'm not, I don't want to be an alarmist. I don't want to be a radical. I just believe what my Bible tells me. Like, it's coming here, too. It's coming to a town near you. Number four, finally, this one's my favorite. I hope it's yours, too. Nobody is too far gone for God. Nobody is too far gone for God. 8.3 I'm looking at this verse. Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I don't know about you, but I look at non-believers in like three categories because my brain's weird. It just does things like that. So I kind of I kind of like um, parse out and divvy up non-believers. In, they, they like fit into one of three columns, okay? The first one is um, those who are likely to come to Jesus, right? Like, oh, I, I could see that as being a possibility of that this dude, this person comes to the Lord, right? And the second one is people who are completely unlikely to come to Jesus, where it's like, no, nah, it's pretty much impossible for that dude to ever come to the Lord. And then the third one is um, those who shouldn't be allowed to come to Jesus, even if they want to. <laughs> like, I'm serious, man. We all do that with Hitler and Stalin. Don't act like you don't, you know. Those people should not, even if they wanted to, you know what I mean? Nothing here for you. I put, I put Paul in the third column. I really do. I put Paul in the third column. This dude was public enemy number one to the church. In this passage, this guy is ravaging the church like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, so to speak, hauling off men and women from their homes and throwing them in jail for being Christians, splitting up families and throwing them in prison. But what I find most amazing is that this guy himself is about to get captured. He is about to become a prisoner to the Savior that he's been warring against. I take great comfort in the fact that I see such an evil man who's against the Son of God and the people of God about to get showered with the grace of God. He doesn't deserve it. I rejoice in knowing that no one is enough of an enemy for Jesus that he cannot make them a friend. I love that every day. Because I know how I was. It's funny how sometimes you've taken things that are so, like you're so ashamed of and just like literally put them out of your mind until something triggers it years later and you're like, oh man, I haven't thought of that for years and I wish I hadn't of just now. But I'm looking at this guy who's directly opposed to the church of God and I'm thinking about this. And I'm realizing that there was a little bit of that in me too. There was probably even in some way a little bit of that in you. Because see, when I was a young punk, I was all about girls and drugs. And I was out of control. But my parents had this stupid rule, like yours probably did, that if I lived in their house, I had to go to church. So they made me go to church and they made me go to youth group. And I was not one of them in youth group. I was not a sheep. I was a total wolf. Like, I was poison 
in that well. Many of these people I turned on to music that they shouldn't have been turned on to. Many of these people I got drunk for the first time or took them to parties for the first time or got them loaded on some kind of drugs for the first time. Like that, that was me. And I remember even at a young age thinking to myself, if I wasn't going to hell before, I am now. Comparatively speaking, I wasn't an enemy of the church at the same level as Paul. But I firmly am convinced, I am firmly convinced that even though there are people who have looked worse than me, believe me when I say this, I am the worst person I know. I am the worst person I know. It's not because of what I have done or haven't done. It's because I know what's in me. Like there are levels there. And I have traveled all the way down to the basement. And it's just not good. I am the worst person I know. And it killed Jesus. I love what Paul Washer says. Over my lifetime, I've given God countless reasons not to love me, but none of them have changed his mind. Isn't that great? Write that on your arm. Nobody is too far gone for God. What, a, what an amazing, what an amazing Savior. How deep the Father's love for us. Once an enemy seated at his table. God is the difference. It's funny, we look at miracles in this book. Like casting out demons from people that are going into pigs. Or like healing people that are clearly lame, that are getting up. And we go, wow, how miraculous is that? Which it is. We say, I wish we still witnessed miracles like that. But honestly, the greatest miracle that we have that we see in scriptures is one that we still get to participate in today. It's the miracle of conversion. It's the miracle of an enemy of God becoming a child of God. It's nothing short of a supernatural work. There are people in your guys' lives right now, every single one of you sitting here today, that you believe are too far gone for Jesus. Think about them right now. You know, I know you have them. There are those people. It's in your family, it's in your past, it's in your presence, in your place of employment. Maybe it's in your home. I don't know. But know that it is not true. They are not too far gone. Because the collective fullness of our sin, listen to this, the collective fullness of our sin is simply unable to stand up to the overwhelming power of the grace and forgiveness of Christ for us. It can't do it. No it's no match. Praise God for that. This is why we come to this table. This is what this table preaches to us every time we come to it. This is what it imparts to us. This is what it shows forth and reminds us of. Christ for us. You are not doing something for God, Christian, when you come to this table. So don't think that way. This is God doing for you when you come to this table. This is what God has done for you. It's a free gift. You can't add to it. This is the gospel for us. If you are not a believer, if you have never met Jesus, I implore you to. I implore you to repent of your sins and be saved and know Him now. To go from enemy to friend, to child, now. Now.
And that's done through faith. You believe that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did what he said he did for you. This table is also just for believers. So we're going to go ahead and take it now and be blessed, resting in the fact that God took you from a bad guy and made you a good guy. (laughs) That's actually horrible. I wish I wouldn't have said that. It's not true. Lord God, thank you. Um, Thank you for your early church and um, what we're able to see through what you've preserved through them. I thank you that you're in control not only of us individually as your kids, but also of your bride, also of your gospel, that you will see to it one way or another that the word of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, will get to every ear that it's supposed to. Help us, God, when we feel you pressing down on us in our lives to know that something better is being formed in us. Help us to rejoice in it. As we go this week, God, um, please make the gospel which we've heard and which we read about real to us in a way that it flows out of us as your ambassadors to the people around us. Make it living, God. Give it voices to the people who desperately need it. And we ask it in your name. Amen.